turn to pages 10 and 11 in our worship folders. This passage is placed here at the end of the life of David. It comes to us actually after the beginning of the chapter, which includes his last words. So clearly this, this section is out of order in the chronological presentation of the life of David and presents some textual problems for biblical scholars when they try to reinsert it where it should be found uh, in his life. 1 Samuel 22, a whole book earlier, includes some accounts, and 1 Chronicles 11 as well, this so-called cave of Adullam time of his life when he was on the run from Saul. And most scholars place it in that context when David was a younger man and had not yet become fully enthroned as a king of Israel. He was running from Saul, and as we know, he hid in the cave of Adullam, hiding and eluding from the superior forces of, uh, of Saul, not unlike Geronimo hid from the American U.S. Army in the 1890s for years, eluding them as they sought for him in the hills of the southwest. David has been successful in this. Others, however, would say that this is a, of a later period, uh, a period when he had already become king, but in which there had been some reverses by the Philistines, and he was run uh, again back to that cave. Even so, uh, at any rate, he's on the run. He's in a bandit's hideout. He's in a difficult place. And um, his fortunes are low. We read now in first, second Samuel 23 these words. During harvest time... Three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at, who were at, who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. This is God's word. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we too are on the run from forces that are greater than ourselves. We are pursued by the devil and we find ourselves uh, seeking refuge away in a hiding place and that hiding place is you. We turn to you this morning and we thank you that you are stronger than any cave and more mighty than even those 30 men and that you are able to protect and defend your people. We pray that you would use your word to bring comfort to those who are sorrowing, chastisement to those who are proud, and peace to all through the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, apart from the context, this is really still a pretty puzzling story, isn't it? I mean, David, 
longs for this certain water. Now, clearly the cave would have been well provisioned. There were, it was inhabited for some time, and they had gone and gotten food and water enough to sustain them during these times when they were on, on the run. So it wasn't that he was just thirsty. It, it wasn't that he didn't have anything to drink and no, no one else did, and he, he wanted some water. It, it says, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Something in, in, in the location, of course, in the city of David, seems to indicate a possible loss of confidence. David grew tired of being on the run. And when he learned that the Philistines were not only encamped near Bethlehem, but they had occupied the city and made a garrison of it, it disturbed the promises that God had made to him earlier when he said, I will make you king over Israel. And one of your descendants will always sit on the throne. I think he finds himself in a similar situation as that of John the Baptist that we addressed some weeks ago, who was imprisoned by Herod, condemned to die, and who sent word to his cousin Jesus, Are you the Messiah or should we seek another? Despairing, because his circumstances were so gloomy that even the prophet of the Lord was weighed down by them, confined by them. Perhaps in the same way, David is asking for something here that he his heart longs for. He he longs for for Jerusalem, but especially for Bethlehem, his home, the city from which his, his line had come. And he longs for some contact with that place because it represents not only home, but also the promises of God down through the ages. Now we know from the benefit of history that everything works out fine. And in fact, the second David was born in the city of Bethlehem some centuries later. But David didn't know that. David could only see the darkness of the cave and the uncertainty of the surrounding circumstances and the meagerness of his resources. And he wonders. And so perhaps, not out of regular thirst, but out of a thirst of his soul, he calls out to his men, not in any particular command, but he just calls out the desires of his heart, and he says, Oh, if I could only have reassurance. And that water from Bethlehem would reassure me in these dark moments that there is a God and that he does love me and that his purposes are invincible. Well, this is a deep groan of his heart. And his men who love him and are close by overhear that speech or or expression. And they leap to their feet and they say, we will go. And three of them volunteered to go and get water from that very place. And they are successful. They make the trip without being detected. And they come through the Philistine lines to the well, to the place where the water can be obtained. 
and they bring it back to David. No doubt thrilled that they had escaped with their lives and that they could please their commander whom they loved. These mighty men. But when they get there, David, again, overcome, pours the water out. Now, if that had been me, or maybe you, you'd have said, no, now, wait a minute. Do you want the water or don't you? Are you, were you serious? We just risked our lives and you poured out what we brought you at the risk of our lives as almost it were nothing. You didn't even drink it. What's going on here? But as far as we know, they didn't react that way. They were respectful. They were patient. They were not disdainful of their commander and what he had just done. They were willing to wait for his interpretation. He refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. And he gave his action, this interpretation. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? He does not give them thanks for what they have done. Instead, he gives it as a drink offering to the Lord. Something in the provision of that water has changed David's heart, or perhaps while the men were gone. He has moved from a feeling of hopelessness and despair and abandonment and wonder about the providence of God to an appreciation for the fact that these adversities are from him too. These defeats are his victories. These trials are his triumphs. He does not give the the warriors glory for what they had done. He gives a drink offering to God saying, in effect, you did not do this, God did this. All accomplishments are a gift from God, including this valorous one that you undertook just recently. In other words, he doesn't decorate the volunteers who have been successful in answering his request. Instead, he honors the one who gave the water in the beginning the creator of the heaven and earth. This is astonishing. This is wonderful. And it does reflect some kind of transformation in David's heart in the intervening period. From despair to honor. He doesn't take the glory of it all to himself. He says, what they have done for me, I am not worthy of. They have gone for me, They have brought back this very expensive gift at the risk of their lives. Far be it from me, O Lord, to to do this, to drink it. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? 
So what do we learn from these faithful warriors who silently and circumspectly watch this strange behavior on the part of their king and commander? You can't take credit for what you have. David doesn't take credit for it. He might have said, what wonderful men I have. They'll risk their lives for my my slightest whim. My most meager wish is their command. What a king I am. What a commander. What a leader. He doesn't take credit for that. Nor does he give credit even to the soldiers who have risked their lives. In a clear and surprising way, in a way that we probably are slow to, to copy... He sees that we can't take credit for what we have. We will rejoice in our adversities. And even when a provision is made from the the very well that, that was an encouragement to him, that showed him that God could be successful and would be successful at some point in the future, he doesn't take credit for it, nor does he give it to them. He says, if you get power, praise, and love... Pour it out to God. Take him your despairs, and in that prayer which he answered through the soldiers, rejoice, but also when you receive, remember that it is only from him. Give it back. Pour it out. Paul says that of his own life. He says, my, I'm coming to the end of my days. My life has been a drink offering poured out to the Lord. That's how we are to live. Not unto ourselves. Not as if we are the beginning and end and the measure of all things. But if you get despair, remember that your defeats are his victories. And if you get power, praise, and love, pour it back out to God. Because that too is a gift. Not an accomplishment. Although people will praise you. And your parents will be proud. It comes from God. And David tellingly illustrates it here. Your ultimate allegiance cannot be to a king, but only to the Lord himself. So these warriors cause us to look to the transforming warrior who brings such things to pass. Page 11. They overheard the longing of David's heart, these soldiers did, And risk their lives to try to satisfy it. There is one who has overheard the longing of your heart. You are thirsting for something. And you're not getting it. It's not working because you're trying to get it for yourself. God says, I have the thing that your heart is really after. Union with God. The love of God. The peace of God. And Jesus went and got it for us. He girded himself and faced even death itself for us. And when he said on the cross, I thirst, while there was possibly, probably a human aspect to that, the commentators who've looked into these last seven words of Christ almost always mention that there was a thirst expressed there to do the, God, the Father's will, a thirst for his people, 
a thirst for the accomplishment of this task that couldn't be assuaged by any liquid refreshment. He thirsted to keep the calling to which he had been given. I thirst for my people. I thirst for the accomplishment of their redemption. I thirst for the fullness of God's purposes through him. At the cost of his life, he got the water we needed so that God could overflow in our lives. He went fearlessly and aggressively. Colossians 2 says that he made a public spectacle of his enemies. You see, when you look at the story of the cross as described in the New Testament, he seems to be the spectacle. The crowd is gathered around, the soldiers are there, the disciples, and they're all looking up at the three crosses and the, the thieves the thieves, and Jesus in the middle. But Paul's interpretation of what happened, God's interpretation of what happened there, is that at that moment, he's not the spectacle. His enemies are the spectacle. He is winning and defeating them as he dies upon the cross. So we read in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This, again, is not what we would expect. Just as David poured out that expensive gift that his brothers had gotten for him. So the one who seemed weak was really strong. And the one who was defeated was really victorious. The cross was a victory. It was a battle. He won, not by taking power, but by losing it, giving it up. Not by taking command, but by serving. Not by devastating evil people, but devast- not by devastating evil, but devastating people, a transforming revel- revelation. He took care of sin and broke it apart. As he was devastated. And so this warrior is truly unique and purchases for us a redemption that is costly indeed. There was no more valuable water than the water of his life, and he poured it out for us. There was no greater cost that could have been given, yet he willingly gave it up. This warrior was successful. And as a result, our lives are transformed, changed, rearranged. So how do we fight? We're not called to go through the lines of the enemy, perhaps, unless we're in the military. How do we fight as his warriors, as soldiers in the kingdom of God? What are our weapons? How may we display our trust? One of the places where it is most starkly revealed is in Romans chapter 12. So I haven't printed that out. If you want to turn there with me, read with along with me as we hear what Paul says in describing how we fight as his warriors. This is Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. We could have started earlier, but we'll start in verse 14. The same idea is being continuing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn 
with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Fight in this way. And you see, as we go down this list, that enemy after enemy raises its head and must be defeated. When others persecute us, our response should be not to curse them back. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Instead of being filled with envy, we say, great, wonderful, good news for you is good news for me. Mourn with those who mourn. And say, instead of saying, oh, I, I'm sorry to hear this, I wonder what's on television, I wonder what I can do next, we stop and we hurt. And our agenda gets put aside. Live in harmony with one another. Of course there are differences, differences everywhere. In order to do this, we must certainly fight against those differences And do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't praise yourself. Don't puff yourself up and surround yourself with acclaim. Instead, seek those who are hurting. Economically. Mentally. Criminally. Be willing to associate with people of low position. To the to the hospitals, to the nursing homes, to the jails we go. Do not be conceited. This is a fight. If you want to avoid conceit, you can have a fight on your hands. Because we are told to aggrandize to ourselves all kinds of things. And therefore, as a result of successfully gaining those things, we say, I'm pretty good. It's subtle, but over time, it's strong. Do not be conceited. That's a fight. You want to fight against conceit, you'll have a a strong enemy indeed. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Don't pay them back. Someone strikes you on one cheek, give them the other. They ask for your coat, your shirt, give them your coat as well. Everything. As far as it is possible, at least in so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, that's a fight. (laughs) You have to fight for peace. You have to work through the objections and the stiff arm and the rough elbows and the the off-putting behavior of other people. It's a fight. Only true warriors get through this thicket. Mythology is filled with a story, you know, of the, the maiden in the castle and the, the man gets on his horse and cuts his way through the underbrush and cuts his way through the forest and climbs the tower. Well, this is a harder battle than that. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room. Leave it to God. I'll get that guy for what he did to me. I'll get her for what she said about me. I'll, I'll find a way. No, step back. Fight against the natural response. As a soldier in the army of Jesus Christ, leave room for God's wrath. Let him take care of it. What do you mean him take care of it? They offended me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And on the other hand, not just defensively, but also offensively. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil but good. It's described in the final verse as, as something of a battle. Who's going to win? The winners are those who overcome evil with good. And the losers are those who are overcome by evil and succumb to it and give up. I quit. Too much. Jesus is described in these words. No one can do this on our own. It's only he who can give us the strength. But he is the captain of our salvation. He is our Joshua, hence his name. He is the one who goes before us into this battle and leads his mighty army forward. And he is the one who blessed those who persecuted him, blessed and did not curse. He was the one who rejoiced with those who rejoiced and mourned with the widow of Nain and the loss of her son and at the, at the grave of Lazarus. He lived in harmony with all of his disciples and even with Herod and even with those who opposed him, the Pharisees. Do not be proud. He was so meek and gentle, but be willing to associate with people of low position. The blind, the lame, the leper, he was there. Always there. Do not be conceited. Accuse him of many things, but conceit is not one that will stick. He did not repay anyone evil for evil. Though, as he said, he might have called angels to his side, he didn't do it. Instead, he gave himself for us. As far as it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He did not take revenge. He left room for God's wrath. A wrath which fell on him. A wrath which he absorbed for us. When his enemy was hungry, he fed them. When his enemy was thirsty, he gave them something to drink. He was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil with good. And so to the application now, page 11. If someone, first bullet, if someone hurts you, it's just, it's on the surface here that you don't hurt them back. This is a warrior. This is a fight. Only a fighter can do this. The secret of how we do warfare now is to take it, is to do it like Jesus did. And particularly, this specifically involves don't over identify evil with the evildoer. Many, many times in the Gospels it says that Jesus looked upon people with sadness and understanding and compassion. Even somewhat his accusers. We tend to blame the person and leave the devil out of the equation. This is a serious mistake. The problem you have with your spouse have their origin in Satan. He hates marriage. 
He hates Christianity. He hates the work of God in your life. So if your spouse vexes you, look first at him and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Don't over-identify evil with the evildoer. Now, in the case of marriage, it might not be an evildoer. It might be just someone who disagrees with you. Nevertheless, don't leave the devil out of the equation. He is there wherever there is strife. Wherever there is evil and wickedness and disruption and hatred, he is there. And we tend to blame XYZ person. Well, when, when really they are just simply, at that moment, vehicles or instruments in the hands of Satan. If someone hurts you, don't hurt them back. The secret of how we do our warfare as warriors in the kingdom of God is to do it like Jesus did. Secondly, if you feel like a victim, it distorts you. This victimness stuff is, is dangerous. If you feel like a victim, it is distorting your understanding of yourself and distorts your image of others, and you become hard and blind. Jesus said, in such circumstances, there is a pathway out of that hardness and out of that blindness. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yes, but what if they don't say they're sorry? Forgive them. Yes, but what if they do it again? Forgive them. Over and over, we don't have time to go through the theology of forgiveness, but Jesus, Jesus goes way overboard on the side of irrationality here. In, in unnaturalness. Forgiveness, as we look through the New Testament, is just sprinkled everywhere where it doesn't belong. It takes courage soldier-like bravery and grit to forgive. The gospel tells us we are saved by grace and not by works. And when other people's works offend you and upset you, and if you become a victim, if you look upon yourself as an object of their hatred, even if there may be some truth in that, you become smaller and smaller and smaller and harder and harder and harder and blinder and blinder and blinder. That's why Jesus said, pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. It takes courage, bravery, and grit to forgive. Be a quick and frequent forgiver. Get better and better. Go to forgiveness, just like you go to repentance. Often, 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 often. Thirdly, if you know that you could only be saved by the cross, then you are grateful for the cross. We destroy the power of evil by loving those who have evil within them. Jesus did not let us go. He went after us. But in love now, I must serve others. So, okay, I don't fight back. All I do is I just say, well, I just... Just leave me alone. You're out of my life. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. I'm not going to face it. Jesus did not let us go. The one sheep left, and he left the ninety and nine and brought us back. What a captain 
And now in love, I must serve others. They don't deserve it, but neither do I. They haven't merited my forgiveness or haven't even expressed repentance. But God didn't wait for me to do that before he went after me. Finally and fourthly, the gospel will make you loyal. The warriors in this story loved David so much that his wish was their command. He was not their boss or commander. He was their beloved Lord. And they went to get this water because of him, not for the medals that they might have earned or the recognition among their comrades. They almost crawled over each other to have the honor of going and getting that drink for their, for their commander. The gospel makes us loyal to Jesus and says, where can I break through? Where can I break through my resentment and my hurt to someone I must forgive? Where can I break through my selfishness so that I could see the lowly people around me and their needs? Where can I break through? David longed and so they broke through. If you see what Jesus did for you at Calvary, you will become a warrior against evil for the one who gave himself for you transformative thing. You will see on the one hand that enemies can become friends, defeats can become victories, and pain can become rejoicing. How do we fight? Like Jesus did. The captain of our salvation, our Joshua leading us into the promised land, who said, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. May the Lord enable it to be so in this portion of his vast and victorious army. Let us pray. O Lord, we are poor soldiers. We are worthy of discharge. Dishonorable discharge. For we knew this. And in being reminded of it this morning, we have seen the indictment in our own lives to say, I'm not like that. I don't love Jesus that much to fight his way. I fight my own battles in my own way. And I win sometimes. But, oh Lord, help us to see that even when we think we win, we lose when we fight like that. Help us to see that the wonderful truth of the gospel is that Jesus shows us the way to be successful warriors. The world will scoff as they did at him. They will think us weak, and they might even take advantage. But remind us, even as they think these things, that such did they think of Christ. They, They saw him as a wounded victim helpless and pitiable upon the cross, when at that very moment he was making a public spectacle of his enemies and triumphing over them by that cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are such a king, such a commander. Help us to pour out our lives as David poured out that water in service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.